0: Quarterly
1: Report this is your host, Armand Lee. Hey, what's up, everybody? I am your host, Armon Lee, and thank you so much for listening to a new episode of the Quarterly Report. We got a really fun show this week. My homeboy Ian McCoy stops by to break down which rookie has been the best in this loaded rookie class so far this season and why he does not like the second season of The Wire. I've been trying to figure that out for years. He's going to fill us all in on that. Plus, I'm going to try to delve in to the Aziz Ansari whole situation. You're not going to want to miss that. All that and so much more. But first, the number one topic this week. First quarter. I like to think of my show as a national show. You know what I mean? Like It doesn't matter where you live. As long as you like basketball, uh, boxing, football, and you know current events you know what i mean that you can follow up with the show you can keep up and you know i hope it feels that way to everyone i mean shout out to my listeners in the uk and sweden I, i've seen you guys over the last few weeks starting to pick up over there and that's dope i don't even know how you heard about the show but shout out to you um but i hope no matter where you live you can uh take something from the show you enjoy the show and so many of the sports that I like, even the NBA is such a a national, you know what I mean, sport where you don't have to live in Cleveland to know what's going on with the Cavaliers and all the problems they're going through. And and with the Golden State Warriors and Houston with the Rockets, the whole night. However, there will be times where, you know, local teams and I live right outside of D.C., uh, I will focus a lot more attention to them because they interest me. You know what I mean? And I haven't talked about the Wizards in a while, but I find what's going on with them completely fascinating. And they were just on national television this past Friday on ESPN. And I think many of, you know, NBA fans throughout the world were able to see kind of what people in this area have been experiencing, right? The Wizards have talent, especially in terms of their three, you know, high-profile players. Obviously, that's John Wall, Bradley Beal, and Otto Porter. They're all talented. They're all young. They're all homegrown. And that you would think is a nice core to have. But I don't know if nationally people understand when they see the Wizards and you see, like, why are they struggling? And that's relative. The Wizards right now at the time of this recording or the fifth seed in the Eastern Conference, think about six games over 500. So, you know, relative struggling is relative, right? You know, to a Knicks fan like myself, <laughs> I'd kill for the Knicks to be like that. You know what I'm saying? But for a team with three max players, a team who has fringe uh, championship aspirations, I suppose. I don't even think they have championship aspirations if they're honest with you. But for a team with with a a top five um, salary, right, they've got the fifth highest payroll in the league, I believe, either fourth or fifth, being six games over 500 isn't going to cut it. And recently, there were people in the area, people who cover the team even, suggesting that there are players on the Wizards who are untouchable, meaning there are players on the Wizards who cannot be traded. And this entire idea, the the Wizards roster and this idea of being untradable is killing me. I have no idea why Wizards fans and the people who cover this team have so much confidence in a roster that to this point hasn't done anything. You know what I mean? And you see the confidence that this roster has. It's almost to the point of arrogance where they run around. They got nicknames for each other. They talk about they're the best backcourt and this, that, and the third. And they haven't been to the conference championship yet. To put it into perspective, in the last three seasons, the Boston Celtics without a superstar, depending on how you view Isaiah Thomas, has been to the conference championship. The Toronto Raptors, right? And DeMar DeRozan has gotten better, no doubt. But I wouldn't say DeMar Derozan's not a top 15. If he's a top 20 player, that's fringe. So he's not a superstar, but they've been in a conference championship. The Atlanta Hawks, the Atlanta Hawks, have been to a conference championship. None of those teams had three max contract players. Hell, two of them didn't have two. You know? But the Wizards sit here with three and they run around acting like they've won something. They've accomplished something. And that's OK. If they want to have a certain moxie to themselves, whatever, they're playing it. But for the people who cover the team and fans to sit there and be like, nah, man, they're untouchable. We straight. I don't understand it. And this all got me thinking, man, like because this past week. I'm thinking to myself, man, you know, Ernie Grunfield is the general manager of the Wizards, and he's awful. You know, <laughs> they, I'm not even going to waste breath on that. He's awful. But although the Wizards do not have cap flexibility, they do have three players who are really good. Three young players who are locked up long term. So they do have um, some, a lot, relief really, of flexibility. But the idea that John Wall and Bradley Bill can't be touched is crazy. The Wizards, in my estimation, they're like the Eastern Conference version of the Portland Trailblazers, right? Portland has two really good backcourt players, Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum, right? And C.J.'s kind of, he hasn't really lived up to what he did two years ago, especially this season. He's fallen off a little bit, but he's still a good player. You know what I mean? Struggling this season, but a good player. But... I, I generally question, right, um, I genuinely, excuse me, question how far a team can go when their best two or their best or their biggest high usage players, right? The players who dominate the, the, the majority of the offensive possessions are guards like that. Like, unless you're talking about Steph Curry or James Harden, you know what I mean? Can you win building a team through your guards? Primarily, you know, not like Kyrie with a a bunch of really good defensive players and Al Horford in the front court, or not like, you know, I don't know, Chris Paul. Even Chris Paul with the Clippers. Chris Paul, an amazing basketball player, but even he hit a ceiling. And Chris Paul is far better than John or Brad, right? I think that's a legitimate question. Like, with a guard as your primary offensive, two guards as your primary offensive players, how far can you go? And Portland, despite having a superstar like Damian Lillard, they keep hitting their head on the ceiling. And the same goes with the Wizards. So why, why wouldn't the Wizards entertain moving one of their star guards? Right? Because just because you have good players, if it's not working, stop trying to fit a square peg in a round circle, a round hole. Right? At some point, you have to realize, okay, this isn't working for us. That doesn't mean they're bad players. If, I, if you trade Bradley Bill, that doesn't mean Bradley Bill's a bad player. Bradley Bill's been an all-star this year. He deserves an all-star spot more than John. And I love John, but let's keep it funky. It's not for the Wizards to have three max players on their team and them to be behind Miami, who has one, and them to be behind Toronto, who has one, and them to be behind Cleveland, who has one You know, and then to be behind Boston, who has technically two, but Kyrie is going to be three. He's going to be maxed. And one of their max players, obviously, Gordon Hayward, is not playing. You got to look at it and be like, yo, the roster configuration, something's not right. That's not a, a knock on John, Brad, or Otto, but it's a knock on how the roster is built. So stop trying to force something. Think of it like this. Every year, we hear about Anthony Davis being available. And I can't believe that that's true. Anthony Davis is one of the best players easily in the league. And his injury concerns are have been a bit overstated. I believe he's averaged 70 games played the last two seasons. Okay? So, yeah, that's not 82, but I'm not going to trip off of 12 games. You know what I mean? When you give that type of production. All you've heard in terms of trades for Anthony Davis has been, boston in these picks and one of jalen brown or jason Tatum. i really like both those young players okay and the pick is enticing okay because they could get i don't know if they would be willing to trade the lakers pick uh that they that they do own if it's uh in the top five but it is an enticing offer but you're only trading right potential if it's Jason Tatum a rookie or Jalen Brown, a second year player, in a pick that you don't know who is gonna be, that's just potential. If the Wizards offer all-star Bradley Bill and a first, right? Maybe even two first. If, if you're talking about Anthony Davis, what's better? Honestly, wouldn't the, the Pelicans have been chasing a perimeter shooter for years. If Anthony Davis is is honestly available, I'd offer anything. Don't tell me John or Brad are untouchable. Either of them can go. Either of them. When you are are, are legitimately trying to get a game-changing player, a player who can turn your entire trajectory around just by his mere presence, you go for it. Don't tell me you're not going to pull the trigger to get Anthony Davis because you got a nice, cute nickname for the House of Guards. Man, get the hell up out of here. You understand what I'm saying? And let's say Anthony Davis isn't available. And I can't believe that he is. I can't believe that the Pelicans would be even dumb enough to entertain Anthony Davis. DeMarcus Cousins. I'm not even the, y'all know, if you listen to the show, you know I'm not a DeMarcus Cousins fan. But production-wise, he and Bradley Bill, and obviously they don't do the same thing. They're asked to do different things. But if you are hitting your head, if you're hitting your head on the ceiling with John, Brad and Otto going completely perimeter players, why not shake it up? Now, obviously, you would need DeMarcus to sign long term. But John's Johnson's man, I can't imagine him coming to D.C., getting the taste of the playoffs for the first time and then wanting to leave. I think he would stay. But you would need a, a, a guarantee. But if DeMarcus Cousins is available, why wouldn't you try to move Brad for, for DeMarcus? Right? Change if 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 the puzzle is not looking good, if it's not looking completed, man, change the pieces around. The Wizards have not done anything to deserve any player on their roster to be considered untouchable. For what? What have they done? What have they accomplished? We've got people in DC running around talking about they're gonna get they should try to trade for DeAndre Jordan or you know, DeMarcus Cousins and only giving up Otto or Otto Porter and Martin Gortat. And that's not going to cut it. Nobody's going to trade an all-star player. DeAndre Jordan was an all-NBA player last season for Martin Gortat. What you talking about? His contract's not even expiring. To get good players in the NBA, you got to get give up good players. And right now, right now, The only players who are worth anything in terms of the NBA and other front offices are concerned are John Wall, Bradley Bill and Otto Porter. And Otto Porter has it in his contract that you can't trade him in his first year of his new deal. So guess what? If you really want to change the game, if you really want to change your trajectory and become a contender, a legit contender, because guess what? Boston has passed you by. I'm sorry, y'all. Look at the Celtics. And they still have flexibility moving forward. And Gordon Hayward's not even playing. All right? If you couldn't beat Boston last year, I'm sorry. Beating them this year and years moving forward, I don't see it happening. Not with this roster the Wiz put out. LeBron is LeBron. We know that. The Wizards seem to have struggled against Miami for the last 10 years. You know, then you got teams like Philly and Milwaukee on the come up. You got to strike when the iron is hot. You can't just wait and keep on, hey man, it didn't work. What they say the definition of insanity is to continue to do the same thing and expect different results. That's been the Wizards to a T from their front office straight down. Let's change it up. You got Kelly Oubre on the bench, not even able to play as much as he probably should be because you've got some type of commitment to your front court players. Get out of here! What have they done? What has anybody on this roster done to deserve anything? It's an entitlement complex going on in D.C., and I'm not just talking about with the basketball team too. If you look at uh, current events outside of the sports world, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But Wizards, man, I love, I love, I like the team. I I watch more Wizards games than I do the Knicks. I want them to play well. I want them to to for- get further down in the playoffs. I want them to finally get to a conference championship. But at some point, we got to be honest with ourselves, man. And unless you got Steph Curry, James Harden, man, building a team this way, it doesn't work. Hopefully, you guys love working with me each and every week. Make sure you get in contact and interact with me on the show. You can tweet at me at Quarterly Show. That's Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E Show. Tweet me your thoughts, your opinions. Do you think the Wizards should be open to trading Bradley Bill or John Wall? Would you trade Bradley Bill for DeMarcus Cousins straight up? Would you offer two first-rounders and Bill for Anthony Davis? Or am I crazy? Let me know on Twitter or via email. Me, email email me in the show at QuarterlyReport at gmail.com. Again, that's QuarterlyReport. At gmail.com. For more on the Wizards and the NBA, I'm going to welcome my guest this week for quarter number two. He's making his second appearance to the show. My homeboy, Ian McCoy. Second. Quarter. All right, guys. My guest this week is a good friend of mine, man. He's making his second appearance on the show. You could catch him at the real Ian McCoy on Twitter. He is the senior live producer at Vimeo. My guy, Ian McCoy. Ian, what's going on, bro? What up, man? How's it been? man I'm doing good I'm trying to get like you matter of fact I left this out during your introduction you are not only are you you know live producer for Vimeo wizard super fan but you're also hipster extraordinaire you know what I'm saying I left that out for the introduction my apologies hipster extraordinaire Ian McCoy
0: come up to Brooklyn we'll get you in a pair of skinny jeans get you some (laughs) thick rim glasses small batch brewery beer you'll be good to go (laughs)
1: All right, man, we got a lot to talk about. Uh, If you guys remember, Ian was one of my first guests of the show last year and he created a super dope metric where um, it was kind of an all-in-one stat that would kind of help let you know which player was uh, more productive, who had a better season. So we're going to revisit that, but focus on this crop of rookies um, that are taking the NBA by storm this year. Plus, We're also going to get into the second season of The Wire. All right, man. We're gonna get to all that a little bit later. But first, we're gonna start with the Wizards. Um, You are the biggest Wizards fan that I know. At least when you compare like your fan and your fandom and your knowledge of the NBA game, as it pertains to contracts, um, statistics, all this type of stuff. Right? You you're the biggest fan, Wizards fan that I know. Um, and I talked about this in the first quarter, but in this area, and I know the wizards have picked up some, um, some national attention in recent days, you know, they had two all stars, Stephen A. Smith uh, went on them again, but locally it's crazy. At least to me, the number of people, and I'm not just talking about fans at the gas station or the grocery store, but people who cover the team, uh, for respected papers and websites and blogs who feel that not only are John Wall and Bradley Beal untradeable but like Kelly Oubre is untouchable and I'm just kind of baffled by that logic so as someone who follows the team knows the team and sees and understands where they're at on the spectrum of the of the NBA especially in the Eastern Conference do you agree that the Wizards have players who are not touchable
0: So my opinion, it doesn't really have to do with the Wizards. It's kind of like an NBA-wide opinion. And it's if you right now can contend for an NBA championship, which in my mind that's – I mean, we all think the Warriors are going to win, but that's maybe four or five teams that, if things broke their way, would have a shot, you know, Rockets, Spurs, Cavs, Celtics. If you can contend for an NBA championship this year, you can have untouchable players. But in my mind, if you can't, then no one is untouchable. Like, you have to be doing everything you can to make your team better. And the Wiz right now are not winning a championship. They're not going to win a championship this year. They're not going to win a championship next year, like, if the team stays the same. So everyone has to be available, in my opinion. Now, that doesn't mean make a trade for the sake of making a trade. That doesn't mean, like, oh, Kemba's available so let's see if we can trade John Wall for Kemba and Marvin Williams. No, that's dumb. You know, <laughs> there are these rumors that Anthony Davis is available, who is obviously a top five player in the league, in my opinion. It's definitely right. top ten. He is available. Then, yeah, like Brad is available. Honestly, John is probably available. Like I love John, but is he better than Anthony Davis? No. Way. no. So, <laughs> so, so then like he is then available. And this thought. You know, and it's not just Wizards fans, like, everyone that knows how to use NBA trade machine figures right. out some way to give away their garbage, you know. To get a superstar. Like, I saw somebody on Twitter today that was like, oh, well, the Celtics could trade Marcus Smart in a second-round pick for Derek Favors and Rodney Hood. And it's like, <laughs> will the Jazz one do that. Like, and, you know, we're not going to get an A-list player back for Otto. Like, I love Otto. He's great. Right. He's exceeded expectations i think he deserved the contract he got but you're not trading otto porter for anthony davis you know but like not that he's the only player we should be targeting but right like but give up something good to get something good.
1: i want to stay there for a second and once again guys i'm joined by my good friend ian mccoy he's the senior live producer for vimeo um there's so much talk locally um about trading otto and you know otto and he, he's hurt right now, and his hip is there definitely worrisome. But trading Otto isn't, in my opinion, the smartest move at all because Otto excels at things that a lot of people just don't value, okay? He's not going to be a – he's not a 30-point scorer. You know, mm-hmm. he's not going to get you 30 points and 17 rebounds on a, a consistent basis or anywhere close to that type of production. But he plays so well – as a low usage player, that if you tried to trade Otto, you would get nowhere close to um, value in return because, again, he specializes in things that people just don't value. So every everybody in DC wants to trade Otto for DeMarcus Cousins or Anthony Davis, and I'm thinking to myself: number one, the Pelicans won't do that, and number two, if you were to trade Otto you wouldn't get anything close to value. And you can't even move them this year.
0: You got to do what you can. The other thing that, like, again, you know, Wizards got blown out by the Hornets the other night. They just beat the Pistons, so it down a little bit. But right. that night, everyone was coming with, like, the hot take trades, how to fix right. the Wizards. And what – I didn't see anyone mention this. Because Ernie didn't just offer a deal to Otto right. and had to match the Nets deal, Otto has a no-trade deal for his whole first year until right. that runs up. So not only does he have the lowest value, he's going to be the hardest one to trade because do you think right. he wants to go play in New Orleans <laughs> by himself <laughs> with a, with Boogie Cousins that could leave in the off season? Like, no, he, he clearly likes DC. He went to Georgetown. Like, so even if you could find someone that overvalued him, you know, like odds are the Wizards are trading with someone who they're not – Probably gonna be trading with another contender. They're gonna be trading with a bad team that's trying to rebuild. So like it, this thought that Otto Porter is gonna like fix, we're gonna trade him and get like Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson back in their prime is crazy. And again, yeah. nothing bad on. I love John. I rock John Wall sneakers when I play basketball. Like <laughs> i have his jersey. I wear it to every game when he comes up here and plays, the Nets and that's the Knicks. I love John Wall, but. I could love Anthony Davis really quickly as well, or any other you know superstar top five or ten players should they become available.
1: All right, guys. Once again, I'm joined by a good friend and senior live producer for Vimeo, my guy Ian McCoy. Make sure you follow him on Twitter. He's at the Real Ian McCoy. Uh, a lot of fun stuff on his timeline from a wide variety of topics: music, entertainment, food, and of course nba and the wizards um but we're gonna go larger scale here and not just focus on the wizards um the first time you were on the show i remember we were in a group uh text and you let us all know that you just for whatever reason just came across making your own kind of metric that uh kind of added a lot of different um statistics together and spat out a number um and i thought that was just such a dope concept that you would just do and you know last year you know when you came on Initially, you know, people were kind of like, I don't know about that, but, uh, to validate it, you know, a year later we asked, you know, who's was the second best player in the Eastern conference. And the choices were Giannis, Jimmy, John and Paul George. And that's how, uh, the rankings came out. Giannis number one, Jimmy Butler, number two, Paul or John wall, number three, Paul George, number four. And if you look back at that now, you would absolutely rank those four players in that order. And your metric just had that a year earlier. So that definitely um, gives some credence to the science behind it. But this year, I'm curious to see what your metric, uh, how your metric, excuse me, ranks this rookie class. So I asked you um, to put in the numbers for uh, Alonzo Ball, Ben Simmons, uh, Kyle Kuzma, um, Donovan Mitchell, and Jason Tatum. Uh, I don't know the results. I'm assuming Ben Simmons comes out number one. But uh, let me and the audience know how your metric uh, views this rookie class.
0: Gotcha. And for those that don't know, who didn't listen to the last time I was on, the, the metric came about actually when the for the MVP debate last year. Because last year was the closest MVP race in my memory. And there were all these different schools of thought. There were people like the traditional numbers, you know, points, rebounds, assists, and blocks. There are people that like the analytical numbers, you know, true shooting, real plus minus, win share, stuff like that. And then there's a third group of people that liked wins, you know, how they performed head to head, like these kind of off stats. So basically, I took 12 different statistical categories, four from each of those lines of thinking, and dumped them into one metric so that you're not getting the best traditional stats player, you're not getting the best analytics player, you're not getting the player that helps their team the most, but all three are accounted for. So... When I did that with all the rookies this year, the way it shook out was actually, you were right. Ben Simmons was the highest ranked. Um, but what kind of surprised me was how close it was actually. He had a, a final score of 43.5 as the mm-hmm. numbers crunch out. I won't bore everyone with the higher right. the number, the better, as all will say. Um, but Jason Tatum actually had a score of 40, and Donovan Mitchell had a score of 39. Wow it was, it was very close. The Lakers were a a good bit behind, to be honest, but I, Ben Simmons is so impressive, but there were a lot of things that I didn't realize. Like the team actually is worse with him on the floor offensively and better defensively where I thought he was more of an offensive player. Right. He has a box real plus minus of 3.4 on defense and negative 0.7 on offense. So that was kind of surprising. Um, Tatum his I knew Tatum was good but his true shooting percentage is off the chart 62 percent his win share per 48 is point one seven five, and for those that don't like analytics like us that's awesome right like, especially Eddie, a for like anybody ready. right so he kind of made up a lot of ground in some of those efficiency categories on Simmons um, and then I mean, Mitchell's just been balling. He's a, if all you wanted was someone to score and, you know, any type of analytic is going to value scoring since that's the greatest point of basketball. um, He, he would be your guy for that. He has the best offensive real plus minus. He's scoring the most points per game. He's scoring the most points per game, head to head against those guys. His true shooting percentage is second after Tatum amongst the, the class. So, Simmons is great. I feel like I actually just talked about the two guys that aren't as good as him longer, Um, (laughs) but, but it just shows really how special of a rookie class this is that kind of like the MVP debate from last year. Like it's not that there's a bunch of average players and we have to pick one. It's truly that there's like three by my metric, great rookies. And, you know, all these numbers are also only halfway through the season. So a lot could change between now and the end of the season, but, um, well, I would give Simmons my rookie of the year vote in this moment. Uh, Mitchell and Tatum are making really good cases as well.
1: Once again, guys, I'm joined by my guy for real, Ian McCoy. He's a senior live producer for Vimeo. Make sure you follow him on Twitter. He's at the Real Ian McCoy. All right, Ian, so, you know, we got all the pleasantries out the way. It's time to get to the, the heart of the discussion, okay? As many of you all probably know if you've listened to this podcast or know me at all, I am slightly, probably very much so addicted to The Wire. Uh, Matter of fact, you can go on over to the Instagram account, the Quarterly Report at Instagram, and you can check out my Wire NBA mixes where I compare some of the best players in the league to our favorite characters from The Wire. I know that's a plug, but whatever. Back to the topic. Ian, you and I have known each other for a while now, years now, and you and I have disagreed on just how great season two of the wire is in my opinion it's the third best season of the show um and i believe you feel it's the worst season of the show um i know you told me recently that you and your wife had just started rewatching the second season so i want to know has your feelings for the second season of the wire changed at all
0: so i don't know about change you know it the the worst Here's what, I, this is the nicest thing I'll say about season two, and then I'll <laughs> go in on it. The worst of something great is still pretty good. You know, right. Like the, it's all relatives. It's the not like we're going. Patriots Super Bowl teams, one of them would be the worst. Right. But they all win Super The Wire is the best show ever, but it has to have a worse season. <laughs> and here's why. I'll give you a couple reasons why. Okay. Reason number one, every year we get like 20, Gangster movies. You right. know, this is like a thing people like to see. Right. When did you ever see a movie about like a shipping union? That's <laughs> so boring. Like, no one makes movies or TVs about because no one cares. One, three, and four, you know, you've got what sells. You've got drugs, you've got money, you've got guns, you've got, you know, corruption, you've got intelligence. It's so interesting. And the main storyline of season two, like, I get that it's like some backdoor mafia stuff, but I don't know. To me, like (laughs) a shipping shipbuilders union, I don't know, doesn't really do it for me. Maybe I'd be more interested in it if I was like in a union or something, but that's a very niche audience. Okay. Okay. My second point, I know you love in season two. Brother Mazon, My God! Brother, as soon as he came on, I, I paused the TV. I said, Emma, this is Armand's favorite character. I just needs you to know this before, like, we get to experience him. But if it weren't for the good graces of Omar, he would have died right there in season two. I know. Oh, God, he's not that tough. He can't mess with Baltimore. Murderland, baby. Like, oh, my he's God. He's lucky Omar let him off the hook. First and foremost. And then lastly, now this is a little bit more serious of a point than the other three, and this is actually something my wife turned me on to in season two that I hadn't really thought about it. The show as it's going portrays um Sabatka as this guy that's just trying to like help out his family. You know right. he's like I'm just trying to help out the union. I'm just trying to help out my family. And they kind of make him like a sympathetic figure because right. of that, which I, once I thought about it, I was like, well, why are they just doing that for like the white guy? Right. You know, It's like all those kids like flinging dope on the corner are just trying to make a buck too, you know, right. just trying to put like, get money for their family as well. But you never really like get that feeling from them in any of the other season, but for whatever reason that's kind of forced on you and the fact that it's only forced on you about like the one white storyline, I don't know, made uh, I get it, but it just made me feel a little uneasy.
1: I feel you. Uh let me respond accordingly. I'm gonna start with the most recent uh point that you made because it's fresher in my mind. Um I I understand where you're coming from in terms of how they portrayed uh Frank Sabaka. I don't think they were heavy handed. The way they did it, and I believe I feel that they did that on purpose, right? They wanted to, more or less, kind of show mainstream, quote unquote, uh, audiences that Frank and his nephew Nikki, they are just like Avon and Bodie, that they are doing dirt because that that's how they feel that that's their only way to survive. So just like just because you you sell drugs does that mean make you a, a a bad individual and i feel like they use season 2 and white mike and frank sabaka and nikki sabaka almost as a mirror to indirectly show you know people that yo the the guys in season 2 are just like the guys in season 1 season 3 it's just that as a society we view you know the black drug dealers in a far more in a far more negative way than we do the guys who may live just right down the street, the guys who you know, little little Jason that you know you've known since kindergarten. You know what I mean? I feel like David Simon and company they did that on purpose to kind of hold up a mirror to America to be like these guys are they're just the same. It's just how you view it and how you know our criminal justice system it. But I'm I can with that. But
0: then like show me Prop Joe's family as well. You know, right. like, you. show me that he's just trying to, like, pay his grandma's mortgage. I feel you. Because she's I in, like, a wheelchair or something, and then I'm more, like, all in know. But except, I, I accept your rebuttal.
1: But I agree. I, I do agree with that. I understand where you're coming from. Secondly, and this is this one touches near and dear to my heart because I love brother, brother Muzon. You're right. <laughs> Omar had him dead. Could have killed him in season two. That absolutely could have happened. Okay? But we can't act like Brother Muzon just was... Some, you know, lunch meat. Brother Muzon walked into the towers, shot cheese in front of his homeboys with one little pistol, and then sat in front of the towers, and nobody from Eastside came in. Like, Brother Muzon was legit, bro. He was the hardest dude, one of the hardest guys in the show.
0: That's true. That's fair. I mean, he is bad. Like, but, I don't know. Omar gave it to him. That's all I'm going to say. He
1: did, he did. You're right, you're right. But you know what? Overall, like you said earlier, um, anytime you're ranking something that's great, you know whatever is last place in a great show, it's still really, really good. My my ranking is four, three, two, one, five. But again, you know they're all the show as a whole is really great.
0: For me, it's three, four, one, then a gap, then two and five because five is just so unbelievable. Like yeah. the first four seasons, I think the beauty of them was like. It all seemed like stuff that could really happen. Super authentic, yeah. And then in season five, would you start getting into like planet evidence, and it feels way more like a bad, you know, cop yeah. drama yeah. that should be on like TNT or something. <laughs> <laughs>
1: all right, guys. Once again, he is the senior live producer for Vimeo and good friend of the show, my guy Ian McCoy. Make sure you follow him on Twitter. He's at the real Ian McCoy. Ian, as always, bro. Thank you so much for joining me this week on the Quarterly Report.
0: Thanks, man. Holla at me.
1: (laughs) Hey, man. That's my guy for real, man. Shouts out to Ian McCoy again for coming on the show. You guys have heard the horn, so you know that means halftime is on the way. But before we do this, uh, I got an email. And I I normally don't do this. Uh, I normally do stoppage time every other week. But this email pertained to the Aziz Ansari situation. Uh, This comes from dominique from oxen hill and again these names sometimes are unisex i don't know if it's a guy or a girl but dom says armand love the show listen every week i'm curious it's not sports related but what are your thoughts on aziz ansari and his sexual uh, allegations um you know this this topic again i was going to do it for a quarter But I decided to kind of just wrap to you guys right before halftime, you know, take some time out to discuss it because it's been weighing on my mind for a while. And it's weird. Maybe it's just the way my mind works. But it it came again to my head recently. Um, This past week, my daughter, you know, she's the superstar of the household. She came up to me and she was like, Daddy, you know, I want to have a slumber party. Right. And, you know, I start getting annoyed. I'm like, yo, what? Because, you know, I've I've had, you know, she's had a sleepover before. She's had one little girl from around the way come over a few times. And she's had, she has a cousin who's about like eight months younger than her. But, you know, they're around the same age. And he comes over all the time. They always have a sleepover. But never like a bunch of girls at the same time. So, you know, I'm like, yo, man, you know, I need to get some activities, some books, some painting, like all these things I want to do to make sure, you know, that they have fun and that, you know, they're stimulated mentally, you know, all types of stuff, right? So, you know, my sister's out of town, so I going to talk to her about it, you know, things I could do. But I, I asked my cousin Sadiq, you know, he has a little girl, and, you know, he gave me some good advice. And then I talked to a lot of my 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 women friends, and, you know, they're basically like, yo, just, it's, you don't have to do anything out of the ordinary. Just do the same thing you do when, you know, her cousin is over, right? And it made me think back to the last time my cousin, her cousin was over. Long story short, right? Um. They're, they can't agree on what they want to watch on television, you know. Um, so during the process of us trying to figure out a compromise. They lose the remote, you know, and it's probably at this point on a Saturday night. So it's like 830. And I'm like, yo, if you guys don't find the remote, you guys are going to go to sleep. You know what I mean? So my daughter goes upstairs and she starts tearing that house up trying to find this remote. You know what I'm saying? Like she's going all over the place, like, you know, an archaeologist, like looking you know, for bear, you know, for whatever, for the remote and her cousin, <laughs> he's in the basement just chilling, you know what I'm saying? Playing with some toys. So I was like, nah, we're going, we're going to kill this right now. You know what I'm saying? This is one thing that we're not going to have my daughter doing all the work and the, and the guy gets to reap the reap the, the boy, the man gets to reap the benefit. So I made sure to nip that in the butt as soon as I saw it. Right? So I find the remote, I give it to my daughter, I'm like, okay, baby, you can watch whatever you want to watch because you were looking for it. So naturally, you know what I'm saying? My daughter turns on My Little Pony. Shout out to Rainbow Dash Pinkie Pie. We ain't here. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I go back down to the basement in the room where, you know, I do the podcast and I do the, the Wire NBA mix-ups. Uh, check that out on Instagram, FYI. So I get back to work and I hear like crying, and I know it's not my daughter because I can hear My daughter is so loud. I can hear her upstairs laughing, you know what I'm saying, at my little pony. So I go out in, in like, the living area of the basement, and I, and I see her cousin laying on the floor crying, right? And I look at him, I'm like, man, suck that up. What's wrong with you, boy? You know what I'm saying? And when I'm talking to my, my woman friend about the sleepover, like, just do things the way you would do, Uh, When her cousin is there, that instantly came to my mind. Right. Because, you know, I feel like we are raising our girls, our daughters, our nieces, our sisters on a higher plane than we are our boys. You know, gender stereotypes is something that my sister, God bless her, really, really worked hard on me to understand uh, while my daughter was while my, you know, she was on the way in when she was first born. Um, and I think we've done really good at trying to chip away at that for our girls, not with our women, but for our girls. Right. And it dawned on me, man, like we are doing all these things. Like with my daughter, I want her to understand. I, I, I want her to be empowered. You know what I'm saying? I want her to understand that it's okay to be, know your emotions right when you're sad to feel that uh, when you're happy to feel that to, to understand who you are right and not to cry because you want attention or cry because you didn't get your way but if you are sad there's nothing wrong with that but at the same time to chip away at these these archaic uh stereotypes that exist that my daughter can be strong that my daughter can voice her opinion that my daughter uh should absolutely, when she doesn't feel comfortable or when she disagrees, to speak up, to 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 empower her to do these things that for so long has been, you know, incorrectly viewed as something that's non-feminine. You know what I mean? However, on the flip side, where when it comes to our boys, we don't do that. Like we, or at least myself, I can't speak for everybody, but I feel this way not i don't think it's just me um where it's we always want to empower our sons to be like hey be physical and to assert yourself and to speak when you want to and you know all these other things things that we view synonymous with power right but when it comes to understanding your emotions lord knows you know for me if i'm not feeling if i'm not enjoying my situation i just shut down right i I like i'll peace out super quick i won't feel my emotions if it's not like a something that I enjoy right and you could shut down like myself or some people you know resort to violence right we're not raising our boys in my opinion to be like full humans where we are with our girls we we are chipping away at these you know like I said archaic gender stereotypes these tropes that exist and we're doing such a great job with our girls I feel but with our boys we're still doing the same stuff that was always done like I know I'm speaking for every man listening to this podcast. I know I heard it countless times. Suck it up, man up when I was a kid. You know what I'm saying? Not a teenager, but as a kid. And I said the same thing to my daughter's, you know, little six-year-old cousin. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And here's the crazy thing. I know that's wrong. I know that's problematic, right? When, 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 and I'm not saying him crying because he didn't get his way that I should have been more. I, I'm not saying that I should have pandered to that. Right. But there was a, I wouldn't have done that to my daughter. And even if I said the same thing, I, the tone would be different. So even like when my daughter would, I'm like, Chloe, stop crying. I would have gone to the boy in my entire demeanor, my entire tone changed. Right. Would have changed. If that was my son as opposed to my daughter, you know what I mean? And you can see how that type of reaction, you know, is problematic, especially when you see how how awful and how quick some of that type of stuff, type of that stuff, can lead to like homophobia, right? Like we know how awful that is, and you can see how how being expressive with your emotions has that can carry that negative impact, and how that can then lead to something awful like that. And then you also see it, you know, not to trivialize this, but the the quarterback for what Washington State you know uh, a few weeks back he he committed suicide and you know a lot of that that he couldn't express his his sadness and the, the, the the depression that he was feeling right so knowing your emotions understanding what the capacity that you have and don't have that's actually something that's really good but i feel like we shut that off for our boys and then they grew up into a world where they're like these little stormtroopers, right? Where they just know violence and to grab their tasers and shoot. You know what I'm saying? Like they're not fully evolved people. And I got to me thinking of this. I don't know how, but like the Aziz and Sorry thing popped up when I was at, at at a gig not too long ago. And it got me thinking to all these things because, you know, someone asked the, the room full of guys, like, oh man, did y'all see about Aziz, man, you know. I like master or none, but more, I can't believe this. And I was like, yeah, man, he's a dickhead for that, man. You would have thought that I was talking about that daddy, the way they came at me. And the, and the crazy thing is right. The first thing two of the guys said immediately after I say that was, oh man, he ain't raped that girl. And I'm thinking to myself, and I didn't stick to myself. I said this out loud. I'm like, yo, she never said he raped her. That never came up. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? She didn't even say she was sexually assaulted, right? She was saying that the environment was awful and that she made him, he made her, excuse me, feel awful during that entire uh, predicament. You know what I'm saying? And she gave specific details. You had the text. It seems very credible. And Aziz Ansari himself didn't, uh, didn't say that that anything that she said was a lie, right? So it seems extremely credible. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, man, imagine, you know what I'm saying? Like, if you can't even talk about this, something like consent that should be, should be cut and dry. And there are legitimate questions, I think, that, and it's a dialogue that I think could be healthy, right? But if you can't even get just to communicate your frustration and your discomfort and your fear about something without someone just shutting down and saying, oh, he didn't do this. It's like... A lot of times, you know, if you try to talk race in this country, you know what I mean? And you can't speak about race without someone just being super defensive and saying, I'm not racist. And then you can't progress the conversation, right? They shut down and the conversation is over. So I'm thinking to myself, yo, imagine being a woman trying to discuss how she is fed, made to feel uncomfortable. And then the, the, the group of people who are putting this in place, who are making women feel uncomfortable just shut down because they are defensive. Like that's a, you can't win. The oppressed can never be the solution of fixing a, of of, uh, fixing a problem. And we are raising our daughters on such a high level, like to where almost they're fully evolved or more evolved than we are because we, we're being raised at a young age, not to ever tap into like an other side of ourselves. And I'm not saying everybody who has a boy or a nephew or son, you know what I'm saying? Or brother does that. But I feel like it happens far too much. And look, I'm not preaching. I'm not on the soapbox. I'm not waving my finger. I know I ain't shit because it took me having a daughter at 27 to kind of start understanding and seeing the bigger picture and start like trying to step out of my own shoes and understand it. So make no mistake. I'm not preaching or lecturing anybody. I'm speaking to myself because again, a seven-year-old, six-year-old was crying and I did the same thing that was done to me that was probably done to my father and grandfather and so on like suck it up. Even though I know it's problematic. You know, so Dom, and and to to get to your point, you know, I I know I'm all over the place here, but it really bothered me, man. And it bothers me because I'm not confident that if I had a son, I wouldn't make that change even though I know it's problematic. That's the scary thing, right? I know Suck it up and man up and toughen up and stop that crying. All that stuff is problematic because of the dangerous, um, the potential, the potentially dangerous uh, ramifications that I have, whether it being something as awful as homophobia or something like I said with the West or uh, Washington state quarterback where, you know, depression hits. Right. But I know I'm not confident that if I had a son, I wouldn't still do that. And that that is, Frightening, you know what I'm saying? Where I know something is wrong, but I'm not confident enough in myself that I would stop doing it. So back to the Aziz Ansari situation to answer your question, you know, I'm, I'm in a room with the coworkers and I'm, and I'm saying to these guys, I'm like, yo, if you are fixing food, if you're preparing food for someone, right? And they move the plate out of their, out of their way and say, I'm not comfortable. You wouldn't continue to feed them you know what I'm saying? You would stop if you're any type of decent human being. If you are giving someone a massage, if I'm giving a lady a massage and she moves my hand away and says, I'm uncomfortable, I'm going to stop. I'm like, oh my God, I'm sorry. Do you want me to stop? Is you want me or something else? Is too hard. I'm going to talk. I'm going to be like, I'm going to stop initially. And then I'm going to ask, like, yo, do you want this to continue? Do you want to stop? Right? Any other, in any other way, in any other part of life, If someone tells you that they are uncomfortable, you will do not persist. You do not continue doing whatever it is that you were doing. So the idea that Aziz Ansari is, and you could, whatever happens before she says uncomfortable, I think there is, there is some dialogue to be had there. But once she says I'm uncomfortable, you know, once she starts moving him away, bro, that's it. And the idea that people are like still, you know trying to justify and defend is crazy to me it's crazy to me so you know like i said man it shouldn't have it shouldn't have to take me having a daughter to come to this point just like you don't need to have you know the black grandchild to be like oh black people they're just like us you know what i'm saying it doesn't you don't need to have the homo the homosexual child to be like man being homophobic is really awful. Like, you know, gay people, they're real people, too. You shouldn't have to have that. You shouldn't have to have the Muslim cousin to be like, man, you know what? Muslims, they're just like us. Like, we shouldn't have to have these direct ties to just be decent. You know what I'm saying? And i again, I'm not lecturing anybody. I'm talking to myself. I'm talking to all of us here. So I don't know if that answers, you know, your question with I'm Sorry, you know, I'm a fan of his work and he's a dickhead. You know what I mean? Like I I don't feel any conviction about that. Like I can, you know what I mean? Like you can enjoy someone's work and then realize that, you know what? They are off. They they have done awful things. You know what I'm saying? Like you don't have to defend someone just because you like their work. I hope that made sense. I hope I didn't ramble too much. (laughs) And I I, I don't know. That's just kind of how my head works sometimes, man. And it was really sitting with me. For a while now. And then when the, the whole slumber party thing rolls up, it just made me think like, man, we, we're doing this wrong. We're doing this wrong because our girls are being raised at such a high level. We're doing, I feel like we are doing a great job at raising our girls to be great women. But then they have to share this world with boys who grew up to be men that we just have passed the buck on. You know what I mean? And that's just got to be a hopeless feeling, you know? This has got to be so again, I hope I answered your question. I hope that maybe this sparked somebody's mind because, you know, you know, I didn't have this talk when with my pops and my pops was great. God bless the dead. You know what I mean? Um, but, you know, I wish I would have. I wish I would have had this type of thought process in my early teens and in my, in my teen years. And maybe maybe this leads to you having one with your brother, or your cousin or your little homeboy, or whatever. I don't know. But um, hopefully it does. You know what I'm saying? Hopefully it at least makes you guys think. All right, guys. Like I said, I rambled a little bit long on that, but I had to get that out. So this is going to be an awkward transition, but it is now finally time for halftime. You know, we talk about something a little bit uh, deep, but now we're going to uh, lighten the mood with something very silly. If you were anything like me this weekend, you were amazed at one Jeffrey Atkins, a.k.a. Ja Rule, because for no reason at least to us, Ja Rule opened up a beef that he lost almost like flawless victory in, in terms of 50 cent. Like Ja Rule lost this beef with 50 cent, you know, a a, a unanimous decision yet for whatever reason, he decided to start another war with fifth. And for all of us on the outside, we have no idea why he would ever want to do that. But as was the case, with Kyrie Irving and AJ Green a few months ago, this is a prime example of what happens when you run out of f- to give.
0: Check it out. Good morning, Ja. This is your central nervous system. You currently have one million f- to give. Enjoy your day.
1: Mm-mm-mm. Yo, it's Rule York. Can you point me in the direction of your Gatorade? Hey, I'm sorry sir, but we only have vitamin water. Is that okay? Be careful, Ja. You now only have 500,000 f**ks left to give. Ah, good to be back home. Baby say yeah! Family, what up? What are you guys doing?
0: Hey honey, we're about to start watching a marathon of our favorite TV show.
1: Oh yeah? What's that? Ain't this about a bit? Warning, rule You have one f**k left. I repeat, you only have one f**k left. Hey dad, I wanna take my girl out on a date tonight. Can you give me some money? Sure son, no problem. What are y'all gonna go do? You know, probably see a movie and chill. Something like- Alright well, you know, make sure you protect yourself, okay? And have fun. What movie y'all gonna see? Uh probably that new bank robber movie. You know, Den of Thieves. What? It's murder. I gotta say, I actually kinda understand Jai now. You know? I'm not saying I would have done it, but when you listen to that with the with all the, you know, context provided now, I get it. I understand. You know, that's what we try to do here at the quarterly report provide some insight for all you listeners out there all right guys man hopefully you enjoyed halftime uh we run a little bit long so we're gonna get this thing right back in order with our third topic this week third quarter of course this was going to be the next segment you know what i mean like we haven't had a sports wankster in a while but following that halftime following what ja rule went through this weekend you knew it was coming right you had, to, you had to know this was coming. For all of you who are not aware, maybe this is the first time you have listened to the show. Number one, I appreciate you. Thank you for tuning in. But number two, this segment is a segment that I like to call Sports Wankston, okay? You hear the Wankston beat, 50 Cent, obviously classic. Eh, maybe classic is too strong of a term, but you know, dope song back in 2003 at least. And you know, the, the highlight of the song was damn homie in high school you were the man homie what the happened to you right i feel like that question is just such a phenomenal question because from time to time no matter what part of life you're in you may see somebody or someone's name will come up and you're like man what happened to joe what happened to him and much like in our real life situations this scenario arises in sports Hence the term sports wankster, okay? So again, if you haven't listened to the show, this is your first time. That is the genesis. That is the entire concept of this segment. We've had sports wanksters hall of fame, like the, the very first member of the sports wankster hall of fame is Freddie. Adu, And I don't know if you guys have noticed, but Freddie do still trying to get in the professional soccer in America. I, I, I was reading an article somewhere and I'm seeing how I'm like, damn, Joe, he, God bless him. You feel me? Like, he's still going for it, man. Chase your dream. But Freddie Adu is first ballot Hall of Famer, Sports Wingster. We had Lenny Cook, you know what I'm saying? Uh, Michael Beasley. The list goes on. You get the idea. All right. So, this week, we're going to do almost like a, a, a double feature because it, it was a tough week for NBA head coaches who used to be NBA players. All right. And initially, I was just going to do it on Tyron Lue. Tyron Lue, yo ass is a sports wingster. You know, it wasn't that long ago that they were looking to you as the fix in Cleveland. Right. You ran David Black's ass out of town and then you won a championship first year. You know, everybody was like, oh, man, Tyronn Lue, he was supposed to be like this wonder kid. Like he was he, he had an apprentice under Doc Rivers and everybody was talking about how Ty Lue was this great head coach and the next guy up. Here we are, two years later. They about to get your ass up out of Cleveland. <laughs> you understand? What happened, baby? Everybody was looking to you like you was the answer, baby. Uh, you know what? That's tough. That No pun intended. Because when you think of Tyronn Lue, you always think of the answer and AI stepping over his high ass, right? So think about this. Tyronn Lue. And, you know, he's an NBA champion. Nothing like a spectacular career, but he had a a successful NBA career, man. Gotta tip your cap for him. He is a champion as a player. He is a champion as a coach. But the thing that Tyronn Lue will be remembered the most for is getting stepped over by Allen Iverson and being carried by not only LeBron James, who after getting embarrassed on national television this past Saturday versus the Oklahoma City Thunder. He, he could have thrown Tyron Lewis life raft, but he, didn't, but he did not at all. He was like, hey, man, I can't focus on that. We just got to stay focused on winning. They wanted LeBron to give him the vote of confidence, and LeBron was like, hell nah. I ain't worried about him. So not only has he been carried by Allen Iverson getting stepped over, but he's also been carried by LeBron James by not throwing him the life raft. But even worse, this week. His predecessor, David Black, coached some all-star game out in Hungary. Even threw a shot at Tyronn Lue, saying, hey, man, I hope we don't give up as much points as Cleveland did last night. Oh, oh my God, that's got to hurt. Tyronn Lue, baby, two years ago, they was looking at you like you was the truth, like you was the savior. The head coach, who knows the, the, the new young head coach who's going to turn it around. You was supposed to be the new Steve Kerr. And they about to get your ass up out of Cleveland. Tyron Lou, damn, homie. In high school, you was the man, homie. What the f*** happened to you? But we not done. No, sir. Because just days later, Jason Kidd got fired from Milwaukee. And look, man, as a player, I love Jason Kidd. Jason Kidd was one of my favorite players as a kid of, like, the post-Jordan era. Jason Kidd is easily my opinion top 15 maybe top 10 player of that era one of the greatest basketball players of all time yo as a basketball player he does some dickhead things off the court i'm not talking about none of that as a basketball player jason kidd was amazing and then you see jason kidd finesse the situation in brooklyn to move over to to milwaukee i was like yo salute to jason kidd man He, he peeped the situation he understood KG and Pierce were on their last legs. Joe Johnson and Darren Williams, that wasn't going to work. So he went to Brooklyn demanding, you know, a power play, knowing that they weren't going to give it to him. But he did that because he saw Giannis Antetokounmpo. And he, he peeped game before most people did. It was like, yo, this guy's the truth. I'm going with him. So he got Brooklyn to let him out of his contract and then immediately took the job in Milwaukee. And I'm thinking, yo, kid knows the game on and off the floor but man it just wasn't working for him he's got the ultimate cheat code and for whatever reason and and shout out to the Bucks organization because they are like yo we are investing money in this we have one of the best players in the world we are giving him talent right they just traded for Eric Bledsoe you know Chris Middleton has been a very good player they have spent money and the results just are not coming in. So they let Jason Kidd go, man. And and, and Giannis was ready to ride for kid. And it still didn't matter. <laughs> That's got to hurt. Jason Kidd has coached two different teams. He's been to the playoffs. I want to say every year he's been a coach, right? If not, only he's, oh, he's only missed the playoffs once. But I, I don't remember Milwaukee missing the players. You know, I, I'm not certain. Maybe that first year they didn't make it. But he's been to the playoffs far more times than he's missed it, if he's missed it at all. And they still got his ass out the paint. I love Jason Kidd, baby. I do. But, man, hey, anybody can get it. So, Jason Kidd, this is the high yellow mix, baby, between you and Ty. Oh, also, how is it that people did not know Jason Kidd was black? <laughs> this was a thing. Babas was already on the timeline saying, like, Jason Kidd, was not black? I was like, bro, what? Jason Kidd used to have the waves that Cal had the part in his head. Like, what y'all look, huh? Oh, man, whatever. I don't have enough time for that. So, Tyronn Lu and Jason Kidd. Jason Kidd, it hurts me to put him in this situation. But, damn it, man, you, hey, you know, I don't make the rules. I kind of do for this show. But, damn it, I got to abide by, you know, a, a higher principle. You can get it, too. Jason Kidd, Tyronn Lue. Damn, homie, in high school, y'all were a man, homie. What the f happened to y'all? Alright, guys, that was the third quarter. We're gonna keep things moving as we finish up strong with our fourth and final topic this week. Fourth quarter. I spent a significant amount of my childhood rooting against Michael Jordan. And let me tell you, it sucked. <laughs> that joint sucked really bad, Joe. It was awful. I believe it started at age nine. I'm not certain, but I believe at age nine was the first year that I was really, because I had no problem with Mike until he started beating the Knicks. And then it was like, okay, we got to We got to cut this out. So at nine and then, you know, six championships in eight years. So eight years later to 17, right? I believe around that time. That's, that's a good chunk of formative years. You know, that's your preteens. That's most of your teenage years. And I'm, I'm, sp- Spending it, spending so much energy, spending so much time convincing myself that the Knicks could beat the Bulls. And and, and then it became once we lost to the Bulls, it was just let somebody else beat them. Like, if we can't beat them, let somebody else beat them. I rooted for the Seattle Supersonics. I thought the Seattle Supersonics could beat the Chicago Bulls. Why? Out of pure hatred, man. I spent so much time rooting against Michael Jordan. And for what? Right? But I actually now, as a 35-year-old man, I'm glad that I went through that. Because it has taught me a lesson. And this past weekend, I realized that lesson is being taught to many of you guys now. Like, this is a lesson that I learned early on in my life. Okay? And it's a lesson that a lot of you all have been, and are currently still, for some reason, learning now. When you are rooting against the best or greatest player ever, you're only going to end in heartbreak, man. (laughs) It's only going to end in heartbreak. So when the Jacksonville Jaguars were leading the New England Patriots 14-3 in the second quarter, and my timeline was filled with Jags tweets and emojis and like, oh, Brady's over. Let's go, Jags. I can't believe they're going. All the celebration, all the celebratory tweets and emojis and all this other stuff. I was looking to myself I'm like, man, y'all, y'all still, I guess, need, the, need this class. Y'all still need this seminar. Because I knew what was going to happen. And I think deep down, everybody else knew what was going to happen. Doug Marone, Blake Bortles, Tom Coughlin, the mammoths too. Shad Khan, all of them. They all knew Tom Brady was going to bust that ass at some point, just like this past Super Bowl when the Falcons are up 28 to three, and everybody's sending like these memes of Dr. King when Tom Brady's laying on the field. Everybody's celebrating on the timeline and having parties and talking about Atlanta the next season and how it's going to be at this that and the Migos out, all everything that you could imagine was flooded the timeline, everybody celebrating. And I'm sitting to myself, okay, Tom Brady still, and I wasn't confident at 28-3, to 3, but I definitely wasn't like, hey, look at the Patriots. They're dead finally. Ding dong, the witches, is Nah, 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 nah. Because when you have rooted against Jordan for much of your childhood, you know how awful it feels when he still wins anyway. And that's exactly what is going on with the Patriots. Rooting against Tom Brady is like rooting against Michael Jordan. Yeah, you may get, you know, the Pistons, right? Maybe the Pistons beat beat them a few times. Just like maybe the Giants get them a few times. But you know what happens more times than not? Maybe, just maybe, you know, Nick Anderson and Penny Hardaway, beat Michael Jordan in the middle of his championship run. Maybe he stumbles along the way once or twice. Maybe, just maybe, Joe Flacco pulls some crazy run with Ray Lewis and Ed Reed out on the defensive end. And maybe they get Tom Brady to stumble. Maybe. But more times than not, they're going to come out victorious. So after the Patriots Inevitably won, which I knew was going to happen, and you saw just the the emotion and the anger and the despair. I just was thinking to myself, it's like, man, y'all haven't learned yet, R- unless unless you have a, a a horse in the race. Why root against Tom Brady? Why why put yourself through that? I rooted against Tom Brady. The last time I rooted against Tom Brady, I'm, I'm being dead serious. Y'all know I'm from Richmond, Russell Wilson, and the Seattle Seahawks. I was pulling for them, man. I mean, y'all don't know. I was pulling for them. They were up by 10 in the fourth quarter. And then Tom Brady, like the magician he is, you know, against the Legion of Boom. Like, this is Seattle top defense. And Tom Brady just marches down the field and takes the lead. But even then, I still had our hoping as Russell Wilson drove down the field And I forget who the receiver was. The ball bounced off the defensive back. He's laying on the field. He gets it and he runs to like the five yard line. And there's a minute left in the game. And I'm like, oh my gosh, the Seahawks are going to Patriot the Patriots. Like this never happens unless it's Eli. This always, the Patriots always do this to every team other than the Giants. And finally, it's going to happen to them. And of course, at the one yard line, At the one-yard line, Russell Wilson throws the interception. (laughs) You know, with Marshawn Lynch in the backfield, run a a, read option. Anything, you got a mobile quarterback and a monstrous running back. And they threw an interception. At that moment, I made an agreement with myself. I like, "Uh uh-uh, we ain't doing this again. You spent all your formative years as a young man rooting against Michael Jordan. We ain't doing this again. We are not doing this again. And I was like, all right, bet. I'm just going to sit on the sidelines and just enjoy watching greatness because that's all you can do with Tom Brady now. Unless you want to feel pain, unless you want to just feel helpless, go ahead, root against him. Tom Brady's 40 years old. He say he want to he play until he's 45 years old. I'm not going to doubt him. Michael Jordan played baseball, came back, and won three more championships. <laughs> okay? I have seen this story before, man, and y'all better get hip to it. Because every year, every year now, I see people now talking about the Eagles. Oh, well, you know, the Eagles have a chance. Okay, sure. Talk yourself into it, man. Really, do it. Because the Patriots are not gonna blow them out. It's gonna find it's gonna be another way. They always do it where you think, man, this is finally it. And then just like Jason Voorhees or something, Tom Brady's ass comes out and puts the the machete, the hatchet, right in your heart. And there my ass is, standing on the sideline with a bucket of popcorn, trying to say, hey, man, I told y'all. It happened to me early. You understand? I had my heart crushed early in life. I know the feeling. I don't want no parts of it. I'm trying to warn y'all, man. Rooting against Tom Brady is like rooting against Michael Jordan. And we know how successful Charles Barkley, the Knicks, the Utah Jazz, Sean Kemp's coked out head, and everybody else in that era of NBA basketball, how that went for them, trying to be the team to put an end to the Bulls. It doesn't work out. Learn your lesson. I'm trying to save y'all from Super Bowl heartache. All you guys, I mean, if you're an Eagle fan, I get it. I understand. You got to rock with a home team. I got no problem with that. Everybody else, if you are not an Eagles fan, just sit this one and just enjoy the show because once you become invested in seeing Tom Brady lose, you're destined for one thing and that's heartache. All right, guys, man, I hope you enjoyed this show. I had a really fun time. Thanks again to my homeboy, Ian McCoy. As always, make sure you follow the show on Twitter. We're at quarterly show that's q-u-a-r-t-e-r-l-e-e show you can email us at the quarterly report at gmail.com uh if you have any thoughts on anything you heard this week trades the wizards any nba talk uh tom brady the whole nine or anything entertainment wise the wire let me know email us at the quarterly report at gmail.com also make sure you guys check out the instagram page again doing some really fun stuff. You'll hear snippets behind the scenes stuff from the interviews as well as my Wire NBA mix-ups. You're gonna really love that stuff. It's really fun. Head on over to The Quarterly Report over on on, Instagram. And as well, please make sure you follow and subscribe to the show on iTunes. We're at The Quarterly Report. Again, that's Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E, Report go to the podcast directory at itunes search for the show you'll see my face on the coin click on that subscribe give me a five star rate and write a little review as well let the world know your thoughts on the show i really appreciate all of you once again guys we are done for this week but i'll see you right back here next thursday for another episode of the quarterly report